to Properties, the podcast that cuts the property industry to the bone. We answer your questions with our expert guests and demystify the smoke and mirrors that makes the industry only slightly more popular than British politics. We are your hosts, Matt Smith. And I'm Chris Erickson. And we are your Properties. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Hey, Matt, not bad, not bad. Good, good, good. We're doing our podcast from our own office today. Yeah, our new studios. I know, yeah, that, that's a, a massive saving. Yeah, we've had to buy all the equipment, of course, to make this work. It hasn't been easy, as it never is. But at least now we can sit back in our own chairs Yeah, and just chill. Yeah, but laid out all the cash for all the equipment, all the gear with no idea, as usual. But at <laughs> least we are able to do it much more easily when we want to, as opposed to having to track down to the studios in London Bridge, which I think we'll probably still make some good use of. But what we're hoping to do is more frequent updates just about the market generally so that we can keep our many listeners informed of what's going on in the property market, which I think is what people are most interested in, apart from obviously our expert guests, as we like to call them or as they are. And everybody always wants to have a chat about the market. You don't have to go to a dinner party and announce that you're an estate agent to know how keen people always are to know what their house is worth and what's going on in the market. Yeah, absolutely. And also listening back to our podcast episodes that we've done so far, we noticed that several times where we have filler words, ums, and, and what's the filler word I always use? Sort of. Sort of. So this will be the last time that you'll ever hear sort of, because we now have recording equipment that very handily takes away any filler words and they click of a button so you won't hear any ers or ums. Although or, I think on this one, we should count your sort of. I just said that. Yeah. Okay, very good. <laughs> and we will, what should we do? A donation? Definitely. What's your favourite charity, man? Bassy dogs and cats home. Okay, so for every sort of starting from now, we'll we'll donate what five pounds. Yeah, we could sort of do that. There you go. There's five pounds. <laughs> Excellent. So today's episode, you interviewed a very good friend of yours, Roger Fang, who used to work with us at Night Frank, and then had a very good career over at Barclay Homes. Yeah. And whilst I was in the room, I let you two catch up and have a very good and interesting conversation because Roger has, of course, set up his own company. So more of that, of course, in the interview. And we thought we would uh, just have a little chat before you get to that interview. Okay, very good. On that note, Matt, what's the latest in the industry? Uh, Something that caught my eye is council tax. So there is now a clear go ahead for councils to raise council tax to the maximum amount, which is 5%. Chris... I'm sure it's caught most people's eyes that there are 14 councils in the UK that have gone bankrupt. Mm. And that means a, a, a Section 114 notice has been issued, which is a shocking state of affairs. So it's not really a surprise that they've gone up. But what I just find fascinating is the massive difference in level of council tax in different locations in London. So, for example, two of the cheapest boroughs in London are Wandsworth and Westminster, hmm. where some of the wealthiest people own property. Yeah, and it's interesting. Westminster is relatively obvious as to why the council tax is so cheap, because they have huge business rates, and that's where most offices and high street shops are located. So they have a huge revenue from the business part, as opposed to the residential side. Hmm. Wandsworth, though, is a little bit different, because they have so many parks. And those parks, of course, are paid for by the council, and so how they can be one of the cheapest borrowers in the country, I've lived in Wandsworth borrowers, so I had no complaints. I no longer do and now have complaints. <laughs> but it's always fascinating to me how Wandsworth have been able to keep their council tax rates so low for so long. Yeah, it, it is a bit strange how it all works. It would be good to have some more clarity actually on that. But listen to this. Council tax will rise by 5% nearly everywhere in the country, pushing up the average bill by £100 this spring, analysis shows. Some 95% of councils with social care responsibilities are raising bills by the maximum permitted, with most of the rest proposing increases only fractionally below the 5%. Councils say they are facing a cash crisis, despite having forced ministers into a £600 million bailout last month with the help of Tory MPs. The last time 75% of councils were planning to raise council tax by the maximum permitted, the local authority leaders saying finances were deteriorating across the country. Cuts to services such as libraries and parks being planned, as bosses say revenues are not keeping up with the surging costs of services they are legally obliged to provide, such as child's care. This is 
it, it, it's astounding, actually. You can see how much your council tax is going to be raised. And there's the government's released a, one of those sort of calculator things. Mine is going up by the maximum, which is 5%. And it's already outrageously high. It really is uh, shocking. And what do you think happens to you, Chris, if you don't pay your council tax? I have absolutely no idea. I'm, I'll probably soon to find out. Uh, because I, I'm, actually, we're not in the same borough anymore, are we? <laughs> I'm in Borough of Croydon. Yeah, so I think yeah, as I drive to your house, I think I just crossed the line. Okay, um, yeah. But I'm, I'm right I'm, on the cusp of... Uh, I'm, my, my postcode is still SW. It's yeah. not CR, okay. to say now. <laughs> You're <laughs> still it, in southwest London somewhere. Yeah, but it is the Borough of Croydon, yeah. Okay, fine. Oh, and Croydon Council declared bankrupt, bankrupt yeah, mm-hmm. last year. There was a whole of... Wasn't there like be, a billion years before last, I think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, oh, it's crazy, yeah. And interesting investments. Enough, yeah, and from a property podcast perspective, most of these councils have made some very bad property investments, mm. which is why they've gone bankrupt, mm. which, yeah, is an interesting irony on its own. So but what does happen then if you don't pay your council tax? I'll come into that. Let's just first talk about how is your council tax actually valued to? There are property valuation bans. And each residential property in England, Scotland and Wales is assigned to one of eight valuation bands between A and H. And it's basically on the, the estimated value of the property, which was based on values in 1991. So that, that gives you some inkling of how behind we are in, in, in values here and in, in what people perhaps should be paying. You have local council rates. So each local authority will set its own council rate annually depending on budgetary needs within the council, things like rubbish collection, schools, fire services, elderly care, etc. And there are some discounts and exemptions. If you live alone, for example, you get a 25% discount. And I should imagine if you're on benefits, so you will get a discount there as well. There'll be so council tax support. And there are also things like parish councils, community councils, and things like that, depending on what's, what's in your council, in your area. As these prices go up, People are not going to be able to pay, especially given the cost of living crisis that we're in. What happens? So the first is you get a reminder notice, then you'll get a final notice, and then you'll get a court summons. And if you, you'll go to court, and if you've basically, the court decides that you just haven't paid your council tax, I don't, I don't know whether this means that you, whether you haven't paid or you can't pay, but you'll then get a liability order. And they can then, the court will then basically deduct from your earnings or take off your welfare benefits if you're getting it. And then if you still haven't paid, bailiffs get called in and it can even force you to go bankrupt or start insolvency proceedings. And obviously in the worst possible case, although I'm sure this almost never happens, you can go to jail. (laughs) Wow. But I think in most cases that it'll be like they'll set up a a payment plan. Obviously the the councils don't want to be in, in the news sending people to prison, especially if they can't pay as opposed to won't pay. But it's quite a shocking state of affairs. But what I find most shocking about it is that some of the wealthiest areas of London, and I should imagine it's probably the same in other cities, pay far less council tax than others. And Mm. I wonder if this, is this morally acceptable? If there are, as you say, for example, in Westminster, business rates account for a huge amount of, of income. Surely the valuation of properties in that borough should not be tied to the income that the council is able to get from businesses. Should they not be revalued and have to pay their fair share? But it's based on expenditure, right? And so the the councils that struggle the most and are putting up their rates the highest are those that have the highest welfare support, highest social housing. And that's where the huge amount of money goes towards, right? Mm. And, you, you know, your Mayfairs and your Westminsters and Chelsea's and Kensington's, they, don't, they have very few social welfare requirements because of the standard of living mm. that the people who live there have. Um, and so that's probably why, right? Have you got a graph there to show how the breakdown? I do not. But I'm sure I've seen that social welfare and mental health. Oh, you know, all of this, yeah. I totally accept that's where the money goes, but perhaps there's a bit of a robbing Peter to pay Paul situation, which is what we should have. If there aren't a lot of council houses or social needs within a certain borough, perhaps it's still based on the value of your property and that money can be dispersed into boroughs that require more. Isn't that what socialism is all about, after all? Yeah, and we live in a capitalist society, so <laughs> there is no, unfortunately, that I agree with you, though, Matt, from, a, from this ethical standpoint and a moral standpoint, but as we know, capitalism doesn't work like that. 
But I, again, with regards to the penalties that you can incur for not paying council tax, mm-hmm. is this just scaremongering? Do they even have the infrastructures to start taking people to court? They can't yeah, even, so we can't even arrest and prosecute real criminals in this country, mm-hmm. never mind people that can't pay council tax. HMRC famously has a payment plan for people that can't pay their income tax on time. It's so easy, you just apply online. You don't even have to speak to someone. And that gives you a, a nice indication of the state of affairs in this country with regards to taxation. I think, sure, they, they're not, they're not going to want to be sending people to prison, but they are going to be want to get, wanting to get the money, whether it's on a payment plan at 50p a week or more than that based on earnings. But I can't see a situation where tax isn't paid, death and taxes. But it drives me crazy as well because I see it. Our bins don't get collected. They don't get cleaned up. The potholes everywhere. I live in Merton Council. It's a nice council, to be fair. Uh, and the costs have gone up and I don't see where that money's going. Actually, to be fair, in, in my area as well, the trees are cut down every spring so that they don't dig up the pavements with getting bigger roots. But the streets, the high street is not clean. Yeah. And the rubbish collection is only every two weeks. And... I don't know. I just think that the service that what I don't see what I pay, which is nearly three grand a year, I don't see much of a benefit in that. Now that's going to go up by five percent, which is uh, it's a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. On top of everything else, of course. Well, but then when you've got income tax going up and corporation tax going up, and then you've got council tax going up, and then mm-hmm. service charges, which we've talked about mm-hmm. a lot in terms of the running costs of, of each building, they've all gone up because of the uh, energy crisis. And people's wages have, some have gone up, but not in line with inflation, and some have gone down. Um, So where's this money going to come from? They're going to end up having people lined up for half a decade to be able to pay off council tax. Absolutely. And also, I think it has to affect, I wouldn't say necessarily property prices in an area, but it would certainly push affordability. Because if you are buying a property, let's say you're doing your sums and you've got your spreadsheet out and you're you're speaking to your mortgage advisor and you're buying a property for a million pounds or one and a half million pounds, and you've got your mortgage payments, if you're paying three and a half grand in council tax as opposed to paying one and a half grand in council tax, that's going to affect your affordability. So you can actually potentially buy a house for a million pounds in one area and not be able to buy a house for a million pounds two streets over in a different borough. Yeah, it's interesting because with stamp duty having gone up so much as it has over the last five, six, ten years. Longer, longer, keeps going up, yeah. We've seen and how watch that, this space on that. Yeah, exactly. And we've seen how that has had an impact on people's uh, perception of an area and what they can and cannot afford. Mm. And then now, more recently, we've seen service charges in buildings. Service charges have always been around, and most people have just sort of, yeah, okay, it's, it's the cost of running the building, right? Yeah. And they used to be tops 5,000. Most of them were around 1,500, and now they're 20,000, 25,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people w- who are making real money are unable to sort of afford it, right? Yeah, yeah. They're sort of, that's 10 There we go, yeah. Yeah, you're doing very well, Chris. Uh, We are donating to charity here. There's no no point in holding back. Something else that I thought was quite a fun story is we all know how important it is to present properties in the best possible way when you're trying to sell them. And there's a lovely story of a, a property that was on the portals that went viral because of the way it was decorated and the seller has reported that he's actually had viewings cancelled since it went viral, which I think is it's rather hilarious. Now, this is a £180,000 house, which is described as having Chanel pillows, pink ribbons and a disco ball, <laughs> which has apparently caused an absolute stir. This is in Merseyside and it's described as enough to make Barbie blush. I think it more looks more like a sort of Barbara Cartland than Barbie to me. But isn't it interesting that, A, the power of good old social media, where some poor bloke's interior has been ripped to shreds online <laughs> and, and, and resulted in cancelled viewings. But it still astounds me just how important presentation is. Because when, I've, when I look at property, whether it's for myself to purchase or whether I'm just valuing it, um, I look at the floor plan for, before anything else. Um, and I look at the size of the rooms, the ceiling heights, the windows, the floors, things like that. Then look at the kitchen and the bathrooms. But the last thing I ever look at is the decor. In fact, if something looks terrible, I think bargain because people aren't going to want to buy that. But it's so important. Yeah, it is. But I mean, you said it there. If it's horrible de- decor, uh, you say great bargain because no one's going to buy it. So mm-hmm. people judge a book by its cover. 
whether you like it or not. I think we're party to that too in our industry because if someone says, come and value my property and we find the old property details and they say, yes, yeah, in similar condition and we see that it's all been refurbished, you think, okay, I need to pay more attention to this because this is high standards, right? As opposed to something that hasn't been redecorated since the 80s. But we keep saying this all the time. In America, they are very good at doing this. Agents actually pay for this themselves. They mm. stage apartments and mm. stage houses and they look phenomenal. Mm. The cost is a return on investment for when they sell the property. And you cannot today, I don't think, in the same way you could 10 years ago, just put a property on the market and not worry about what it looks like. When we take photos, we have a look at the photos afterwards. And most times we're there when it's taking place, but sometimes mm. we're not. And we see pillows out of place. And these are all things that people look at. And with so much social media and so many properties on the various portals, you're scrolling. And if it doesn't catch your attention, you yeah. just keep scrolling. It's got to be impactful. It's got to be impactful and it's got to be in tip-top condition. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a Gaganel kitchen, it, but it has to be presented in good condition. That's right. And also, I suppose it comes down also in this particular story that we're talking about is taste. Yeah. If everything is pink with bows and looking rather she rather kitsch, I guess is the word for it. We had a property in Fulham. We yeah. won't disclose where it was, exactly mm. what it was, but you remember this well. And the internal decor in terms of its colouring scheme was bright blue, bright yellows, bright pinks. Yeah. And we had so many people through the door and we did eventually rent it. Um, but people either loved it or hated it. Yeah. It was Marmite, right? Very much so. If there had been a neutral colour pattern, yeah. that house would have rented much quicker. Yeah. I think anyway, personally, because a lot of people just discounted it straight away. That's a red wall. Yeah. Um, again, it goes back to sort of neutral colouring switch. Was that, was that a sort of, I think it was. We'll tally them up at the end and then uh, we'll, we'll re-record and see how much money we donate to, <laughs> to the poor little catties and doggies. I, personally, I'm very glad that agents in the UK don't have to pay for staging houses. However, there are lots of companies that do stage houses, some quite reasonable, some are very expensive. But I think in, it, obviously there's a, a range of spec and service, how quickly it can be done. And I think actually that's probably a guess that we'll have on at some point from one of the many interior designers and furnishing staging companies that we have contacts within. Because it, it, this is a very, a very important topic because people often just do not understand why a property hasn't got the attention that they think it should, because everybody thinks their property is the best, obviously. Mm. And we will always give the, the, the most advice that we can. But even empty properties, even empty properties, just you get they get no attention at all, or they're, they're not getting to the price that the seller wants. You furnish it and two weeks later, it's under offer. Yeah. We, and we've seen that so many times. Absolutely. We right. should do a podcast about this. There is a company called Flip and we should reach out to them. We've spoken to them before actually and see if they would be interested in, in coming along for a chat because they specialise in exactly this. They'll figure out what the market value is before they come in and then they will refurbish the place. A basic refurb, but they'll make it look really nice. And whatever the uplift on the sale price is their fee. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting concept. We should perhaps speak to them and, and at the same time, maybe, or maybe a different time, it's sort of more traditional, somebody that just comes in and decks it out and then gives it to us to sell. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say sort of more traditional? Did I? Yeah, it's 25 pounds. Oh, I'm there taking. we go. Excellent. We're going to move on to the interview with yes. Roger that you had. So we'll catch up after that interview. Okay, uh, sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of. We are very pleased to welcome our guest for this week, Roger Fagg, who is a, an old colleague of mine and a very good friend. And um, we've worked together for, gosh, since we've both been in property for about the same amount of time, just over 20 years. And Rog, uh, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Rog, you've just, you've just gone out on your own and set up Blackmore Global. I have. Very exciting. Just Tell literally launched it. Uh, couple of weeks ago, my background, I've been in the industry a long time, back in the days when we were in a big agency working with Matt. I've done a whole sort of suite of the property industry. I worked uh, originally in lettings, I've worked in sales, selling period properties. For the last uh, 11 years, I've been working in new homes. I worked for um, a big global agency in uh, working in new homes. And then for the last you know, six, six years, I've been working for one of the biggest uh, housing developers in the UK. I was head of international sales for that company. And yeah, I've decided it's the right time to branch out, do something on my own, try and create a, a really good, strong brand and uh, a good service for uh, clients uh, in the industries. You, you've had a, a sterling career as you've just sort of itemized there. 
And I think you're probably one of the most experienced people, certainly that we know in off-plan developments and sales. You've, 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 every time you, we see you, you're in a different country. What's that like? It's very, it's very challenging. I love travel and yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of international culture, languages. So for me, it was a, it was a dream job working in that arena of traveling internationally, selling the developments for the company that I was working for. And uh, I feel really lucky to have done that. And it's given me a very big international view of property markets and a very good understanding of how investors in different countries around the world, their different requirements, their needs, and, and um, obviously investing in the UK, which is, uh, is a huge, it's a huge percentage of the new build market is international buyers. That's something that we'd re- really like to tap into your knowledge there. H- how are international buyers seeing the UK market? I think specifically London, if you don't mind, just to, to touch on, in, in light of where we are in the world at the moment, what's the, the buzz with international buyers in London? The, the international market, obviously, we've had our economic situation over the last couple of years, which has not been as, as attractive as it was, say, pre, pre-2019. We've obviously had the global pandemic, which has affected investment. But London continues to be a, a global center for, for commerce, for finance. Um, and a big thing is education. So a lot of the international buyers are buying into the UK because of our uh, world-leading universities and education offering. And that's very attractive. If you're coming from China or you're coming from Singapore, if you've got a global education, particularly having had university education in the UK, that is a really great tool for you to then go back to your home country and have that educational experience and that exposure and having lived in a city like London, it, it gives you a huge amount of culture and experience. And certainly the universities need the foreign fees because they're so much more than the local ones. So would you say education is definitely the main draw for international buyers as opposed to perhaps having a, a European base? Or- for example, a lot of people from um, China will buy over here to send their kids to university or for education here. So they will buy a bolt hole in London and they can buy property in London to have a base while they're studying. And obviously, if the property prices are increasing, then they get the capital growth on that. And at the end of the day, they can either keep it or they can sell it. And any profit they've made will generally pay for the education. So it's a win, win-win situation. As, as long as the prices go up. <laughs> yeah, that is the, uh, the critical factor. <laughs> yeah, the critical factor. Although I suppose where the public sometimes has a different opinion on where property should be built and sold and to whom, I suppose if property isn't necessarily going up in value, the, your, your local person who can't afford to get on the property ladder might not be too sad to hear that a foreign investor might have lost some money. But when you hear about foreign buyers buying property and then they just sit empty, that's not really what you've experienced. You, you're saying that they're, it's not, they're mostly It really isn't property. actually. The really high end of the market where people are just parking money around the world and, and, and not potentially living there. But in my experience over the last few years, that's not the case. And pretty much everyone I've sold to has the intention they're going to be using it or they're yeah. going to be renting the properties out. And I think and maybe pretty, 10 oops, years oops. ago, that was the case. And there was some nationalities that would be parking money in London and buying trophy assets. But I think the case now is a lot of people using the, the properties and people want to come here. You know, the people want to come and spend time in London. It's a great city for... Which people, which people, Rog, would you say are the, the biggest demographic? You've already mentioned China and Singapore. Would you say that area of the world has been... The, the, the biggest demographic in the last few years? In the last few years, it has been, but you're getting an increasing number of people from the Middle East. Um, there are a lot of people from Turkey buying new bills at the moment. That's a very... Right now? Market. Or yeah, right now. Years ago when there was... No, right now, at the moment. Yeah. Okay. It's a really hot yeah. market. But if you, look at the, if you look at the Turkish lira, right, and mm-hmm. what that's been doing over the last year, that has, you know, it's gone down 41% versus, versus the pound. It's down 82% over the last five years. So a lot of people will want to get their money out of Turkey and then... Before it goes down even more. UK. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's all these economic and then there's political factors that drive people to want to be able to invest overseas. And if you're yeah. a high net worth individual, it makes sense for you to have your money diversified in, in different countries around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And have a portfolio of assets. And so if you're in... Uh, come from China, have some properties and try if you're from Singapore, have some properties in Singapore, but you might want to invest in property in Thailand or ski resorts in 
Japan are hugely popular at the moment from buyers from Asia. They have somewhere in Switzerland, they'll have somewhere in the US, they'll have somewhere in the UK and diversify their wealth. I I wonder if ski chalets in Japan is becoming a a growing market because the snow has been so bad in Europe and 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 they're projecting that all the lower resorts are going to have to completely change to like summer sports rather than rely on snow. I haven't done skiing in Japan, actually, so I can't, but I've skied in South Korea. What was your fear of height being (laughs) your main barrier? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to come and casting myself off a a chairlift (laughs) and never be seen again. (laughs) <laughs> and Rog, going just going back to your your mention of trophy assets, I've heard from various people that there's now a shortage of the trophy asset class of new builds because they've all been sold where there was a massive spurt of building and now they've mostly been sold and the developers aren't really building those sorts of properties. And now it's more, as you say, aimed at the smaller properties that might be sold to that sort of size and demographic. Is that right? Is there a shortage of trophy assets, massive, big lateral apartments? I would probably say there is. Yeah, certainly from the the developers that I'm aware of, there is certainly in central London. Yeah, there's a, there is a shortage of those big trophy apartments, which although they are the more expensive end of the, the spectrum and the more prime end of the market, there is still really big demand for those. So they sell quite easily, but there's also a huge amount of demand for those cheaper apartments and at the more entry level of the market and where it's more affordable because obviously prices in London have increased. And, and certainly the more affordable entry level of the market, there is a lot of demand for that. So I yeah. think it's been hard. It's harder, getting harder for developers to build those big towers, for example, in London, because there's been planning regulations and changes. So where in the past, if you're building a high-rise tower, you might have only had one fire escape in the building, as in like a staircase going down. Now you have to have two. And that obviously then affects the bottom line in terms of financial availability. And then is it as financially viable as it was before those planning regulations came into force? I suppose the same could be said for the proportion of affordable housing as well that they're required to have within a development. Would that be fair? Yes, there is obviously regulations, uh, Section 106 agreement. You've got to have a certain level of affordable housing and development. But that has always been the case. That's, there's not really mm. any changes recently in that. The big thing is, there's just, as all these areas are getting redeveloped in central London, there's less of them becoming available. There's less land becoming available to to do those. And we've seen an, a period of incredible growth over the last 20 years, for example, in terms of the property market and developers buying these areas of land and redeveloping and, and, and incredible regeneration schemes in areas which have not necessarily been prime. But there's only so much land that's mm. available. And My, Michael Gove is saying that he wants to make it much more easy for brown sites to be redeveloped and that councils will be, I think, fined if they hold land for a certain amount of time and they don't allow them to be developed. And Labour are saying if they get in that they will be creating new cities potentially and also making more brown and green or grey, as Keir Starmer likes to call them, sites available. Do you, do you think there's an appetite for properties outside of central London that could be profitable for a percentage to be sold to overseas buyers, perhaps the more expensive ones, to allow affordable housing to be sold to local people. I, I do think there is a, a very strong appetite for that. I think actually, interesting enough that there'll be some countries from the world overseas over the last couple of years that there's been actually more probably interest outside of prime central and outside of London and in, in, in the home counties and even further afield. So I think there is definitely strong appetite for those brownfield sites and obviously the prices when they launch they probably will be less than the the core established areas and that is attractive i think people whatever people are investing over from international buyers want to invest overseas they want to try and make a, a good return on their their money they spent and obviously the especially when you get in the big say in a scheme where there's a huge amount of regeneration and the developer i used to work for they do go into a lot of areas and regenerate those areas and transform them. And if you get in early in those areas of redevelopment, then you stand a really good chance of making a considerable amount of money because you're getting in right at the beginning of the regeneration of that area. How much do developers often have to contribute to things like infrastructure around a new development, a new station? I can't go to any of the figures, but it, 
there's quite a lot of, in terms of people getting planning permission and that being agreed. Which is yes, essential because you can't have yeah. ha- more houses without infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the, the developers are therefore putting their money in and backing in to the investment of the area, not just delivering on the, the houses, but helping with the bigger picture of the regeneration, which mm. is an important part of it. If you're just yeah. delivering yeah. homes on its own, great. But is the infrastructure there to, to look after and service that amount of people who are moving into that area? Absolutely. So it's, schools, it's about a, a, the bigger part of the, the picture and yeah, in terms of mm. services, like things like schools, transport links and so, and investing with the local authorities in those. That is yeah. an important part. Very good. And Roger, tell us, why did you decide to get out of the corporate world and go for it with Blackmore Global? I've been in the industry 21 years, so it's a long time. I've got a lot of experience, whether it was lettings, selling period properties in Islington that I used to sell back in the day as well, and in new builds. But I think there's definitely an opportunity for new agencies to to come in there and cut through the a lot of corporate politics that exists in bigger companies and also to really focus and deliver on what our clients want at the end of the day, which is sales. It's not rocket science, mm. but you, there's some companies that, you know, I guess when you're working for big companies, there is always a hierarchy and internal politics. And if you're a listed company, then you're answering to shareholders as well. So there's, you know, you can't be as quick as, for example, and, and adapt to market conditions as you can for a, a smaller company. And I wanted to set up a company where I can really deliver for my clients and provide a really world-class service and use and, and capitalize on the experience and knowledge that I've got from the last 21 years, which in the industry is, it's a long, it's a long time. And I'm very, it's a long time. And I've got a very good understanding of the market, having worked in sales and sales period properties as well. And then in new homes and having an understanding of how it works. If I'm going to focus on selling new build developments with Blackmore Global, I have got a very good understanding of how the, the needs and, and wants of developers, because I used to work for one. Do you, are you going to concentrate on looking after buyers or would you be concentrating more on acting for sellers or developers? Acting for sellers and for developers will be the core element of the business. I'm looking to do sales and property management as well. And if people are looking to buy, they'll be helping to service them as well. And because I'm a small company, I can work with other agents and collaborate with international agents, which is something which is a, a unique offering and, and only works for smaller companies like yourselves. If it's, there is that adaptability on in terms of fees and being able to work with other agents in the industry in the best interest of, your, of, our, of our clients. Your vision is so important. Yeah. And there's so much on offer because you can do, rather than being having to sell one development, for example, you've, you've got the whole breadth of London or beyond to offer. So if I were looking to buy something up to, say, £2 million in London, where would you advise spending that money? Prime Central is always a good uh, investment because it's very stable and those are the areas that people can love in London and they're very established. But I think to get your if you're wanting capital growth, which as an investor is an important part, then you need to look out in terms of areas where there is, potentially there is regeneration and investment coming. And I used to work on a big development out in West London, for example, in White City. Mm-hmm. And that was a, it's a, it was a really great area for investment because there's huge amounts of regeneration and, and money coming into that part of London, which is pushing the property prices. With and it's a, it's a total transformation. And you're looking at property values of around 13, 1,400 pounds per square foot. You look at property values in Notting Hill, you know, 2,000 pounds plus per square foot. Well, the development that I was working on, they had 35 people looking for every property that came on the rental market. The properties was rent out in a day. Some of the properties yeah. rent out in four hours of going on the market. They had such yeah. demand. And, and also if you're buying a new build, then you don't have to worry about leaks and whether the gardens need to be maintained and that's right and i don't get me wrong i love period properties and i love other people but it's new build is a very it's an easy investment and then it when is. you want to come and exit of the market there's again a lot of what about the service charges cutting into um landlord's profit what do you think about that because service charges are very high in some of these developments aren't they i mean they are but i think you get what you pay for some of the services that are on offer and some of these developments are 
incredible. Oh. It's not just the area of, oh, we've got concierge in the gym. You've got indoor and outdoor swimming pools. You've got all your communal grounds. A lot of the developments now will have private cinemas and they might have karaoke rooms. They might have a whole suite of services. Tenants love this. Tenants love it. And, and especially so it makes it really easy to get a return on your investment because people want to, people want to live there. I used yeah. to sell products. I've been selling places in Indonesia and Dubai. I can't, I just, I want to live here. I want to live here. And it made it, in terms of a, a sales offering, very attractive to, to investors, but tenants love it. And it's a great, it's a great offering for people and therefore it makes it very easy. If you had to choose three new developments in London, purely off the back of their communal facilities, which ones would they be? There's a development, Southkey Plaza, which is in Canary Wall. Um, it's got the most amazing residence lounge on the upper floors. It's a 50-story tower. And they've got on the upper floors an amazing residence lounge, which has incredible views over Canary Wall towards central London. And again, gym, swimming pool, concierge, really outstanding. I used to sell at White City. The facilities are unbelievable. It's just everything from the most incredible residence lounges They've got co-working areas, which are, are hugely popular. It's got an outdoor rooftop swimming pool with an infinity pool and a beach. So you've got a residence beach, an infinity pool, rooftop garden. It feels like being in a luxury private members club yeah. where ownership is the new membership. And in so fact, got, there, there is a very famous members, members club just opposite, opposite there, isn't it? Isn't Soho there House? Is. Yeah, there's a Soho House. And they, those sort of facilities are... They're amazing. They really, they yeah. really are. It's sort of five-star luxury for residents. There's also nail and hair salons. There's fitness studios. Swimming pools are to die for. They're just, it's incredible. Roger, what, on your travels, having experienced lots of different global cities mm. and cultures, what do you most admire about specific places that you've been keeping it on a sort of a property theme, where would you live if you didn't live in London? I probably would actually go and I'd live in Singapore. I really am a big fan of Singapore. It's an example of a city where just things just work. It's really super efficient, even from the whole experience of the airport experience when you arrive. It's a very green city, very green. There's greenery everywhere. Like it's, it's an incredibly green city. And you not get arrested for like dropping a cigarette butt. You probably would do, yeah. <laughs> but the consequence of that is it's immaculate. There's no litter anywhere. Obviously, chewing gum banned, so you think. But it's a very it's banned. Yeah, you're not allowed in chewing gum. Really? Um, yeah, it's illegal. Yeah. Wow. One of my first trips I did to Singapore, I went to go and have a lunch with some agents, and it was in the sort of canteen food court area, and they were like, "Oh, well, we'll just reserve this place because there were some tables," and they were like, and "They left their wallets and phones on the table and went away to go and get the food." And that's how you reserve your spot oh. in the food court area. You can't even get up there. God. Never take in the it. UK, you'd be robbed and your identity stolen in the first 30 seconds. Yeah. But I think also actually, interestingly, architecturally, when you walk around Singapore and all the new build buildings, they're pretty cool. The design and the architecture of them is, is amazing. Yeah. And in terms of what I like about the Singapore, they're very savvy investors. They, they know what they want. They are very quick at doing the maths. And working out whether something is a good deal or it isn't. Yeah. And they're in the most decisive, actually, because sometimes there are other markets where people are a bit, they will take a bigger gamble on things, but they're very shrewd, the Singaporeans. The interesting thing about having done this job and gone all around the world, selling real estate and meeting with agents, is you do get to meet all these different cultures and places. And when you're doing business in Kuwait, for example, it's very different to doing business in Shanghai. So. Uh, yeah. It's been a benefit for me as well because I used to live in China. I spent three years living in China back in the, from sort of 2008 to 2011 when uh, the economy and the housing market was on fire in China back then. And it's, in the absolute doldrums over here. Yeah. So it gave me a very good global understanding of buyers and, and cultures. Mm. And I think that's a very important thing. There's a lot of people who, maybe deal with the Chinese buyers and don't really get the mindset and as to why they don't want this and they don't want that. And when you live in a, a country like that or you spend a lot of time, then you have a bigger understanding of the, the culture. Thailand was one of our biggest markets over the last year and I spent 
probably about two months of last year in Thailand doing business. You get a really good understanding of those cultures and the buyer mindset and what's important to them. And I think that's when you're doing business, it's very important to have a, an understanding of your clients from a hundred percent. Yeah. You're going to be able to offer a, a wonderful service with Blackmore Global. There's no doubt about that. And then Roger, lastly, can we ask you to, to make some predictions on where you see the property market going over the next six months to a year? And if you like, you can tailor that to new build or just give us your opinion generally. I think there's renewed optimism in the market for the beginning of this year. It seems like there's definitely, you know, that we're looking at mortgage rates having come down or there's been a bit of a fluctuation in the last week with regards to those. But I think, you know, you look at the, the, the property market, a lot of this is based on supply and demand. In a city like London, for example, there is a lot of demand for, for housing and for people to, to move and to come and live here, not just necessarily internationally, even from other parts of the country. People come and they're drawn to big cities to better their lives, for job opportunities and to experience the culture and the lifestyle that those big cities offer. So I think, you know, you've got two different housing markets really, haven't you? You've got that outside of London, you've got inside of London because London's always been a different market and has different drivers, so to speak. Yeah. But I think, you know, we're looking at inflation coming down, which is uh, great. Things with the economy are looking a bit better. There's all those external factors, political events, wars, and we don't really unfortunately have any control over those. But I think think we've seen the market kind of bossing out in terms of the the end of last year. And I think we're on the road to recovery. And I'm, I'm optimistic that 2024 will be a good year. That's great, Raj. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us, Raj. Thank you for having me. We'll um, be monitoring Blackmore Global very closely and we wish you all the, the best success. So that was a good interview, Matt. Yes, it certainly was. He's such a funny guy, Raj, isn't he? Yeah, a great guy. Full of energy. Full of, yeah, and so, yeah, that's what makes a, a great salesman. That's why he's always been so successful. He's just got a boundless energy, goes and goes. Um, what did you find interesting in that interview? Any particular points? It's always very um, interesting to hear predominantly about the new build market or the new build sector because it's just changed London so much since Mm. the time that we've been um, selling property in London. London really is unrecognisable. I was watching a TV show the other day. I can't remember what it was. There was a skyline scene of London and I actually paused it while I was watching just to have a good look. And it really is becoming such a futuristic looking city. And a lot of that is obviously commercial, but the residential buildings going up all over the capital really have changed what it looks like. And for me, I think it's fascinating how much people's tastes have changed. And and I think what Roger was saying about amenities, world-class amenities, because mm. the people that buy these apartments often buy similar apartments in other cities, yeah, because this is the standard of what they've come to expect. And uh, I think Roger was touching on some of the, some of the on-site amenities in these places, but they really, they do go really far these days to, to outdo each other, the, the developers. And we've seen some extraordinary thing. And one of the, one of the most fascinating is one I think that I ever saw was the, the cold cave. Cold it's, cave? Yeah. So you go from a sauna into a sort of an Arctic oh, yeah. room. Yeah. Which with snow. <laughs> I, I've experienced that firsthand in, in a sauna, in, in, a, in a hotel in the Canary Islands. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. And the ability to be able to stand there or, or lay there, however you want to do it, for five to 10 minutes after yeah. you've been in a warm sauna is incredible. It yeah. is incredible. And, and bowling alleys, virtual golf, and residence cocktail lounges on the 25th floor and things like that. And it really is extraordinary. But I think the future of amenities or of buildings outdoing each other are going to become more and more futuristic. And not only will that bring the, the sort of holodeck Star Trek type things that we've discussed before, mm. whereas where you can have any view that you want or the floor could be also a, a display screen, the sky, you could look up and see clouds, but also sustainability. I think it's going to be a huge thing. And there are a lot of buildings around the world that have thousands of trees. There's that one in Italy, what's it called? The Bosco Verticale. That one with, I think they've got something like 900 trees on it or something like that. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I think you mentioned it before, but it's interesting you say that because I was going to raise that point that with all these incredible amenities, you just mentioned that sort of 
ice room, if you want to, it must come at one hell of a cost to A, the service charges and yeah. two, to the environment. Yeah. To keep a room cool, saunas, bowling alleys and cinema rooms. So there's a question there, particularly with the younger generation who's much more... Strapped for cash? Well, yeah, I was thinking more in terms of the environment, but they're more environmentally conscious about it. And uh, I wonder if the government at some point, like they have with EPCs, will start rating these buildings in terms of how much energy output each mm. one has. Yeah, you're probably on something there, but I think there's definitely scope for solar solar energy. And if buildings are built now, they're much more energy efficient, aren't they? than most of the housing stock mm. in London. So they're probably already quite energy efficient. Yeah. Although I suppose running a cold room, that is going to come at a cost, of course. But if they are offsetting that by being so energy efficient in other areas, it'll balance it out. Something that is called biophilic design, which incorporates natural elements into buildings, gardens, vertical gardens, rooftop yeah. farms, natural ventilation systems, that's starting to be put into more new developments along with solar panels and much more energy efficient appliances and things like that. So I think th these are all just going to get better and better. Yeah, I, I agree. We wrote an article and we discussed it in one of the earlier podcasts about sort of solar panels. And we mentioned that continental Europe is very good at this. I'd been to Austria skiing and every house <coughs> that we passed on our way up to the mountain had solar panels facing west or southwest, and they have uh, a lot of excess energy within their homes that they mm. sell back to the power plant. Mm. It costs them, I think one person said it cost them something like 10 or 15 pounds to, to run the heat for his house for six months yeah. because he was producing excess heat, which he was selling back. And I'm just, I'm always surprised just how little uptake that there is for that here in the UK. I don't know whether it's because all the houses are sort of built next to each other in clusters. I'll tell you panels. why, it's expensive. But continental Europe doesn't earn any more money than England does. Okay, so for example, in my house, we got a, we got a quote to get solar panels, and the cost of the panels meant and the battery, because obviously you have to have to have the battery that stores the energy. We would have to live there for fourteen years for it to have paid for itself. Okay, yeah. and while I, I'm sure I'll probably die in that house, and it will hopefully be more than fourteen years' time. Who knows? Mm. If you install it and then you get divorced or you just think, I'm going to move, then that is a waste of money. I was just uh, typing up here, as you were sort of mentioning that, and it says that there are grants in the UK for solar panel. Mm. They're called solar panel grants and yeah. incentives that's for right. homeowners. I just wonder whether that's more prominent in continental Europe than it is here. Because I was just shocked. We were driving past farms that didn't, these weren't expensive farms. Mm. The whole farm was just covered in solar panels. And I see it across Europe as well. But I mean, if everyone started doing that and we had excess energy produced and we yeah. could sell that back to the power grid. Yeah, but would you want to live next to a solar farm? But these weren't solar when farms. These green fields and yeah. you're going to have solar panels on it. But these were just farms that instead of having uh, an exposed roof, had solar panels across the roof. Oh, just, you mean to just, just for that farm yeah. rather than yeah, exactly. an energy yeah. farm? Correct. Uh, yeah. okay, okay. And my, my better half, her parents, their house, they sort of retrofitted it with solar panels and, and they have no energy cost mm, at all. Mm. They're blasting the yeah, heat in, it's in, just, in, it's in just winter. It's the, the layouts for the solar panels. My neighbour's got them. It's happening more and more, but you just, you've got to lay out. And also you have to, you have to ch often change the existing, um, you've got to have, well, your heating needs to not be gas. Yeah. So you need to it's change It's got to be electric. Yeah. yeah. So there's a big outcry. It's not for everyone. I think anything that's being built new, again, which is why it's so interesting when Roger's talking about these new builds and how popular they are now, you can see why. Why people are actually waking up and thinking, do you know what? I'm not going to buy that 150 year old property. I'm going to buy one that's 10 years old or yeah. brand new. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And it's also interesting that it would appear that a lot of this is led by the demand for these homes, which mm. is not necessarily domestic led. It's international buyers who are who, whose own countries and own cities are yeah. being redeveloped. And then they're coming to the UK and they're saying, this is what we want. Mm. Developers have identified that and they're building it. And now we're all getting used to it. Uh, I love li um, apartment living. So I'm sold from day one and always have been. And we specialized in selling these new builds. Mm. I say new builds, they were secondhand new builds. Yeah. But we've really been part of this sort of growing movement across the last two decades. Mm. Um, All those years uh, selling stuff on the river, that really did change the face of London. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
It's incredible. You mentioned earlier, you said you were looking at the skyline and how different it was. And I remember there's a scene from, is it the first James Bond sort of remake with Daniel Craig, Skyfall? Mm, mm. I think at the end like of Casino that movie, Royale is it Casino Royale? Yeah, yeah. He stands on one of the rooftops yeah. in London yeah. and you can sort of survey the whole skyline. Yeah. And I was in a bar a few years back and it was, apparently it was shot right opposite on mm. one of those rooftops. And yeah. I looked up and the entire skyline has changed. Mm. Yeah. Be it from uh, Casino Royale or Skyfall, yeah, it's just incredible it. how quickly mm. that mm. rhythm has taken place. Absolutely. But it looks nice. It looks cool. Yeah, I'm it does. all it for it, to be honest. Cool. 100%. I'll <laughs> tell you one thing, though, that they, they are getting right now, which, which perhaps they didn't from the beginning, developers. What the, new, the, the modern apartments that are going up now seem to have more longevity. They're more classic in design and the materials that are being used are, are going to last longer than some of the disastrous cladding issues, taking the whole fire risk out of it. But just the spec is, is a different class now. And that's good because when you buy a modern apartment, it's like buying a new car, you're paying a premium because it's new. So if you're looking for immediate growth, you can forget about it. But what you do want is for it not to seriously lose value by aging really badly. That's the thing about period stock is that it's it, they're not making any more of it. Mm. And it's beautiful. It might not be very energy efficient, but it's beautiful and it's got a lasting, a lasting appeal. And we've seen that firsthand with a lot of developments that were the top of the range for their time. And then a brand new development mm. has come up and made the other one look incredibly old in comparison. Yeah. And the building's no older than 10 years. That's right. And it can affect um, prices with an area. When, when big agents release their their price indices of uh, whether an area's prices have gone up or down, they'll often exclude new build right. because it can distort the area very much. So you, you don't get an average pounds per square foot. And what's also interesting is you can have one modern building next to another building that's, say, 15 years old right next to each other in the same area and have vastly different pounds per square foot values. Yeah. It's almost as if each building is an area in itself. Makes sense. I'm glad to see, though, that a lot of the new builds popping up around London have a brick facade uh-huh. with sort of glass alterations, yeah. so a mixture between old and new. Mm. And that cannot be cheap to do, mm. but obviously it circumvents the issue of cladding and making sure you have the right materials. But they look amazing, to be fair. Yeah. Very good. I think that's it, Matt. I think so. We don't want to drone on too long. Fair enough. In which case, thank you for tuning in to Properties. And we hope you enjoyed today's journey as much as we did. Don't forget to subscribe and stay updated with our latest episodes and join our vibrant community. You can find us on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music and Audible. For any thoughts, feedbacks or just to say hello, drop us an email at hello at smithericson.com. Follow us on social media at Smith and Ericsson to keep the conversation going. Until next time. Take care. Bye. Bye.